Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And if it's okay with all of you, I thought we'd do something different, it being a kind of half term bank holiday, depending on where you are and when you're listening, um, and all that kind of thing. So a slight change of pace uh, with this. Very recently, I went to the Lewis Book Festival to give a talk on a book I wrote um, about 18 months ago, actually, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, from Rab Butler to Jeremy Corbyn. And over that 18-month period, as some of you will know, and some of you will have kindly been to the festivals, um, I've given talks on the book, and this will be the last one. Uh, I've got a new book coming out in uh, September. So this will be probably the last one ever I give on the Prime Ministers We Never Had. And as I reflect at the beginning of the uh, talk, what's interesting is how the talks themselves have changed over the 18 months to reflect the dramatically changing political context. Indeed, some of the arguments around the book have changed. And uh, I don't want to repeat myself because I say this at the beginning, but it is really a classic case of history being a dialogue between the present and the past, as I explain. So um, even if some of you have been to festivals where I've given a talk on this book, it, it's different now compared to then because of the changing context. And it says, as it's the last time I'll ever do a talk on this book, I suspect, um, I thought we could um, uh, put it out now for the Rock and Roll Politics podcast during this half-term week. Now, at the end of the talk, there were questions. Uh, you won't hear that, I'm afraid. Sorry, if you kind of yearn for more as you're baking and running and drinking whilst listening, um, because I haven't yet worked out to record questions in quality. Um, I know how to record me in quality giving talks, um, but I haven't worked out. So, so it's, it's kind of a difficult listen because you could hear my answers, but not the questions very clearly. So it's just the talk. Um, and uh, as ever, it's um, an AJP Taylor style talk, you know, the kind of historians, one of my heroes who used to kind of come onto a stage or a TV studio and talk without a script. Um, now, he did it at a kind of genius level, but anyway, it's modelled on that. Um, so here we are. It was live at the Lewis Festival a couple of weeks ago, and it's on the prime ministers we never had. Why did these people, perceived in their different ways at different times as likely or almost inevitable prime ministers, why did they fail to seize the crown. Inevitably in this talk we only escape the surface, but here it is from the Lewis Festival. Thank you very much indeed. Um, if it's okay with all of you, I'll talk for a bit and then we can have a discussion. This book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, I'd better explain, first of all, the criteria for who qualified for the dubious honour of being a Prime Minister we never had. And there were two, really. They had to have had a feasible chance of becoming Prime Minister, and they had to have been the subject of a great deal of speculation that they would indeed become a Prime Minister. And for reasons that I explore in the book, they never seized the crown. 
And it's interesting, um, I don't know if any of you studied history, I studied history. They talk about with history, and it is absolutely true, that the present influences the past. So for example, this book was out um, in the autumn, and after the Tory leadership contest, which took place in the summer, the publisher phoned me and said, Steve, uh, how about an additional chapter for the Prime Ministers we never had on Rishi Sunak? <laughs> um, and I said, yeah, great idea, I could, I could do that. Well, thank God <laughs> that book was never published because um, the plan was Prime Ministers we never had from Rab Butler to Rishi Sunak. Imagine if that hit the bookstalls <laughs> as Sunak became Prime Minister um, in the autumn of last year. And last year, with its astonishing turbulence, in a way challenges one of the lessons from the book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had. Because there are several reasons why these figures never became Prime Minister. But one of them is this, and it's something that political journalists are bad about learning, um, it's something that uh, politicians themselves struggle to comprehend. But here is the reality, apart from last year. For all, and indeed in some ways apart from this whole period of Conservative rule since 2010, where there have been four Prime Ministers since 2010. That's more Tory Prime Ministers since 2010 then there have been Labour Prime Ministers for about 350 years. Um, but one of the lessons I found was this. When figures such as Roy Jenkins, Michael Heseltine, uh, David Miliband, uh, there are 11 Prime Ministers we never had in 10 chapters because there's one chapter on the Milibands, David and Ed, and it's a rather sad, tragic, chapter in some respects. Um, but one of the factors that stopped these figures, some of whom would have been mighty prime ministers, from becoming prime minister is simply this. When prime ministers get into power, on the whole, which makes this period of Tory rule so interesting and unusual, they stay for quite a long time. And everybody in Westminster and in the media assumes they are vulnerable, not least the Prime Ministers themselves. But on and on they go. And those that ache to take over, those that often read in the newspapers and hear on the BBC that they're about to take over, find it impossible to remove them. And that is one of the lessons of the Prime Ministers we never had. And I'll give you a few examples of that. Then we'll move on to another category of Prime Ministers we never had. We probably will only have time to explore two and then we'll open it for a discussion. So let's begin in the 1960s. And when you compare it to the last 12, 13 years, it seems relatively stable. Harold Wilson, Labour's great election winner before Tony Blair, won in 64 with a small majority. He then won a landslide in 1966. But then 
something dramatic happened. Uh, you can pinpoint it. The pound was devalued. Uh, and it's always a trauma for a prime minister. They never really recover. And perceptions of Wilson as this great, self-assured, witty moderniser, uh, filmed with the Beatles, filmed doing, the, you know, funny, uh, was fatally undermined by the devaluation. And Wilson famously said in a broadcast, uh, the pound has been devalued, but this won't affect the pound in your pocket. Uh, that's how Harold, well, you're all too young to remember this, but that's how he spoke. And at that point emerged a titan. And by the way, Wilson's cabinets were full of titans, big, big figures, as were Thatcher's in the 80s in a different way. Roy Jenkins had been the great success of Wilson's cabinet. He had been a famous reforming Home Secretary, and isn't it interesting that those social reforms, so controversial at the time, have all endured? There's something about social reforms in British politics that are, in the end, acceptable in the way that economic reform and public services, it's all much more complicated and less enduring. But there was Jenkins. And after the devaluation, he was moved into the Treasury and became a mighty Chancellor. And at that point, there was intense speculation that Jenkins should take over in number 10. Uh, to the point uh, that uh, Jenkins had the support of the Daily Mirror, very influential in the Labour Party politics of that era. And lots of MPs were telling Jenkins, you've got to do it. And Jenkins himself, in his memoir, confirms, well, it did cross my mind that I might actually be Prime Minister at this period. Um, very dangerous when that thought crosses ministers' minds, because you then have this sense of soaring ambition that can be taken away from you just when you think you're close to the crown. And it's very Shakespearean, this book. So, this is what happened. Wilson, who did become very paranoid, but had great cause for much of the paranoia, uh, interrupted a speech, a May Day speech. Uh, I think it was 68, maybe 69. Because there was this feverish speculation that Jenkins was going to topple him in some coup really. And he paused during his May Day speech and said this. Some of you might have heard it because it's a wonderful way for a prime minister to deal with this kind of thing. He said, by the way, you may have been wondering what's been going on over the last few weeks. I'll tell you what's going on. I'm going on. And he did. Um, big cheer from the crowd. Uh, it's something, by the way, that leaders struggle to learn. Wit is a really powerful weapon in politics. Um, our current Labour leader and Tory Prime Minister can't really do it like they have done in certain points. Anyway, the twist is this. Uh, even though Wilson lost the 1970 election, what he said was true. He carried on and on. Uh, so that was, I think, May Day 69. He lost the June 1970 election. And in this era, by the way, that would have been it. Leaders cannot afford to lose elections and carry on. And so if Starmer doesn't win, that's it. He'll be gone. Um, but Wilson carried on. And he won two more elections, two in 74, and a referendum on Europe in 75. 
and left of his own volition in 1976. So there was no space for Jenkins to become leader or prime minister. He couldn't create the vacancy. And if a prime minister is resolved to stay, apart from what's happened over the last few years, they stay. There are lots of examples of this. John Major. John Major, between 1990 and 1997, experienced a whirl of turbulence um, equal to anything Wilson endured. And by the way, for a similar reason. He won the election in 1992, but the collapse of the pound and Britain's withdrawal of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992 triggered years of torment for Major. But the emphasis should be on that word, years. Throughout that period, for much of it, I was a BBC political correspondent. There was incessant speculation that Major was about to fall. Michael Heseltine only had to cross the road and it was seen as a leadership bid. Um, Michael Portillo famously, you see Michael Portillo, do you remember him? I mean, you probably know him now as this person who wears pink jackets and travels in trains all this time. Um, but in the mid-90s, Michael Portillo was seen as such a threat to John Major. Um, Major did that weird thing of resigning as Tory leader to fight a contest while staying on as Prime Minister. It was mainly aimed at flushing Portillo out. And if you remember, Portillo put in a phone bank um, when Major announced this leadership contest, but then backed out. Why did he back out? Because he didn't think he could win. And Major carried on from 1990 to 1997. Seven years, and then the Tories lost and William Hague took over. That's the other thing. Quite often the Prime Ministers we never had um, never had the kind of gumption or moment to strike. So Portillo is a really interesting case study. He was the hero of the Thatcherites, who were still rampant uh, in the mid-1990s. Arguably, they are still now, by the way. Um, but they were rampant. So Portillo had a 40th birthday party when he was Defence Secretary under John Major. And it was a glittering occasion on the right of the Tory party. Thatcher was the star speaker, and she said to John Major's tormented fury, Michael, we have great hopes for you, which roughly translated was, we want you to be prime minister, not this wet figure John Major. And when Portillo went to Tory party conferences, the fringe meetings erupted with a kind of idolatry that's very unusual in the Tory party, or was. The Tory party has changed, um, but was. Um, it was more common in the Labour party with people like Tony Benn in the early 80s. Uh, uh, Portillo went to address fringe meetings from the Bruges group, the No Turning Back group, and when he walked in, it was as if a rock star had entered the room. Uh, the people sort of stood and cheered, sweat pouring off them, average age 105, but it didn't <laughs> matter. They were excited and he was their god. And then something very curious happened, as often does in politics. 
the Portillo they saw wasn't quite the Portillo himself. And this is very interesting about politics. We see figures, but we don't really see them. We think we know what we see, but quite often we don't. And with Portillo, there were many layers of complexity, including uh, an uncertainty on his part who he was. So when he famously lost his seat in uh, 1997, he had the double trauma of not only losing his seat when he thought he would probably win, but noting the entire country was euphoric that he had been defeated, which is quite something to cope with. There was even a book saying, were you up for Portillo? Um, and he went away and reflected, uh, listened to Wagner operas in Bayreuth and all the other things that um, people do when they go through introspective phases. He got his seat back, uh, admitted that he had had gay affairs to the horror of those who had idolised him before, um, became shadow chancellor and had changed. The first thing he did was to say that the Tory party now accepted the minimum wage, which they had opposed, and he cultivated a different kind of persona to the extent that when he finally did fight a leadership contest, and obviously to win, you have to fight a leadership contest. One of the odd things about a lot of the prime ministers we never had is they didn't fight that many leadership contests. Anyway, he fought one in 2001, the only one he fought. Same with Michael Heseltine, by the way. A figure, Michael Heseltine, who was seen as a likely leader from the age of about three months old, um, he fought one leadership contest only the one where he challenged Thatcher in 1990. So Portillo fought in 2001, began as favourite, and launched a dishy, I was at the launch, a dishy West End restaurant to uh, convey the need to modernise. He looked awkward, somewhat shy, and he had changed, and the supporters who had sweated with idolatry in the mid-90s had turned to. And Thatcher, who was still a big influence in Tory leadership contests, told her followers to back Ian Duncan Smith and not Portillo. And Portillo lost quite early on in the contest and announced afterwards, the day he lost, that he was leaving politics and he went to the opera again. And, and felt almost relieved. Although he told me many years later, he still followed the daily twists of prime ministers and just wished he was one. But at that point, he didn't know who he was and never became a prime minister. Major carried on. The same with Heseltine. You know, he made his bid in 1990, finally challenging Margaret Thatcher. And he never sees the crowd. Even though he was, of all the prime ministers we never had, in some ways the most leaderly, closer to a president in some ways of the United States in his leaderly manner. But here is another interesting part of the investigation into the prime ministers we never had. You see, we don't have a presidential system. If we did, there's no doubt that Dennis Healy would have been a very effective presidential figure. I've mentioned Heseltine. Ken Clark, although... Um, he would not have been the most decorative of presidents, if you know what I mean, uh, but he commanded a uh, range of support beyond 
party bounds that presidents have to do in the United States. But we are party-based. And this is another clue as to why the prime ministers we never had didn't become prime minister. You have to be at one with your party. There has to be a dance with your party that is harmonious at a point, and you never are quite sure what that point will be, uh, when a leadership contest is fought. And so let's take two of those people I mentioned, uh, Dennis Healy and Ken Clark. Ken Clark said um, recently, so late in life I discovered a new hobby, fighting and losing conservative leadership contests. And he fought three. And each one, many commentators said, Clark is the one to watch. He's the one that commands wide support in the electorate. I remember seeing Blair during the uh, 2001 leadership contest when Blair was prime minister. He had just won another landslide. He said, the one I'm really worried about is Ken Clark, right? Yeah, um, but Clark never stood a chance. He was so at odds with his party over Europe, his party was never going to vote for him. And in a way, his party was right, because it would have been impossible. Ken Clark, at that point, was a supporter of joining the Euro. His party would have fallen apart, even though Ken Clark was more popular. And so there was never a moment. Ken Clark tried to get round it during one leadership contest by forming an alliance with John Redwood, who was at one with his party on Europe. And I went to that one, the launch of their joint ticket, which, okay, this is a dream ticket, me and John, John and I. It was ridiculous. It looked like something out of Monty Python's Flying Circus, a silly candidacy. Two people who disagreed fundamentally on the raging issue of our times. So Ken Clark, though popular with a wider electorate, was never going to be prime minister, although I can't tell you the speculation about him being Prime Minister during that period 1990 to 1997. The other is Dennis Healy. Now Healy had been Labour Chancellor and that is a tough, tough gig being Labour Chancellor. For five and a half years, torrid years, the 70s, raging inflation, strikes, nothing that we are used to now. Um, and uh, he kind of emerged with um, a sense of weightiness, but also quite popular. So Healy, he was like, it was a sort of preemptive strike at what Johnson did subsequently. Healy appeared, even when Chancellor, making some really tough decisions on public spending and so on. He used to appear on things like Bruce Forsyth's Generation Game. Do you remember that program? And I remember he appeared in 1978 in the Bruce Forsyth Generation Game Christmas Special, uh, where eight famous people appeared as Santa Claus, and the people had to guess who they were in real life. And one of them took the hat off, it was Healy. And, and Bruce was like, oh, lovely to see you, Dennis, joining in the fun. Dennis Healy, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he might have put your taxes up to 98%, round of applause. And they all loved him and cheered. And so Healy had, as well as being a weighty intellectual, read his memoir 
and be inspired. Languages, literature, poetry, but he did the game shows like Johnson. It's the only link between Dennis Healy and Boris Johnson. And so Healy, you would have thought, would have been in pole position after Labour lost in 79 uh, to take over when Callaghan resigned in 1980. And all the media thought Healy was going to win. I remember uh, ITN at the Labour Party conference in 1980 ended their news bulletin with a shot of faces at the Labour Party conference ending with Healy as if his elevation was inevitable. But it was never going to happen because Healy wasn't at one with his party. He wasn't dancing with his party as the Prime Ministers. Johnson with Brexit in um, July 2019 uh, uh, and, and others. He was so at odds, half the Labour Party thought he was responsible for their defeat, unfairly in many ways, and it was never going to be sustainable. Half the Labour Party loathed him, and when Tony Benn challenged Dennis Healy, who was then deputy leader in 1981, famously Benn lost by 0.25 of a percent. Uh, Healy was not going to be the figure uh, who a party was going to elect because he was at odds with that party. That explains another reason why Roy Jenkins never got it. He was at odds with the Labour Party over Europe. And he, Jenkins was deputy leader in the early 1970s. And uh, Wilson played a very clever game over Europe, uh, a more agile, clever game than I think Keir Starmer is capable of playing now. So Wilson, knowing his party, the majority were against Britain joining when Heath took us in in 1973, opposed, voted against membership in the House of Commons. And Roy Jenkins couldn't cope with it and voted for. And uh, that was really when Jenkins' chances of becoming leader ended. You cannot be at odds with your party over the big issues, the economy, Europe, and so on. Wilson did something clever, though, by the way, and Jenkins sort of clocked it. Um, Wilson went around, I don't know why I'm doing impersonations of Wilson all the time, but anyway. Um, Wilson said in the build-up to the 1974 election, we oppose the conservative terms of membership. Clever, because it left space for a Labour terms of membership, which of course is what happened. Whereas Keir Starmer, who's not an agile politician, has basically left him very little space to do anything about the Europe issue in power. A bit, but not very much. Um, so that's another reason. You've got to dance at one with your party. I'll just explore one other because we're building up to another general election. And that is uh, leaders of the opposition, Labour leaders of the opposition, who many assume are going to win and be prime minister, including themselves, and then they lose. And this is why Keir Starmer, although the polls are looking very favourable, faces a tough challenge. Only two Labour leaders of the opposition have won from that position. Uh, Harold Wilson in 64 and Tony Blair in 1997. They both had one significant advantage. They both acquired the leadership 
halfway through a parliament. So they were still fresh by the time of the election, both in tragic circumstances. John Smith dying in 1994. Incidentally, the anniversary of his death was last week. Seems like yesterday to me, that drama. And sad drama. And uh, Wilson followed the sudden death of Hugh Gateskill. And they moved in, seemed very fresh, after a long period of conservative rule, and won. All the others, people told me, what about Attlee? Remember, Attlee was deputy prime minister when the 45 thing was fought. Um, he wasn't leader of the opposition. All the others have lost. And uh, in each case, there were periods when there was a widespread assumption that they would win. But what happens with these Labour leaders is, first of all, they face a media onslaught, which is very tough to take. You have to be huge to wake up and find, in Kinnock's case, your useless, thick Welsh windbag, can't control anything, including your own temper, and, oh, you know, what's that clown doing now? And with Miliband, you can't even eat a bacon sandwich, you know, let alone run the country, and... You know, his father wanted Stalin to rule him. It, it, it affects the way they begin to think of themselves. And they lose confidence and try to be what they are not. Again, a very Shakespearean theme. So Kinnock, for example, before he was leader, he became leader in 1983 in the toughest of circumstances. Uh, Labour had been slaughtered in the 83 election. Uh, Kinnock before he became leader, was one of the most charismatic, ebullient figures in British politics. Um, he was a great orator. That, by the way, was the final era of the orator. And I think it's a great loss to British politics um, that those who could mesmerize a hall, um, there just aren't any at the moment. Or actually command a television studio with interviews. But Kinnock was a great star. I remember there was a by-election about three months before the 83 election, the Darlington by-election, a big by-election. And Kinnock came up, he was shadow education spokesman, nothing big in politics. Um, and he was such a draw uh, in a huge hall in Darlington. There had to be an overspill. And he had them laughing and he was insightful. And um, then I saw them him and his wife, Glenys, and they looked glamorous during the leadership contest that he won. And then, within months, the son said he was the Welsh windbag. Taxi drivers started saying, oh, he's a Welsh windbag. And he tried to change. He became like a bank manager. He brushed that limited hair back. Um, he polished his shoes even more shiny. And he tried to give interviews where he would talk at great length about fiscal policy, to the point, frankly, where it was boring. Um, apart from anything else, he was not who he was. And at that point, it becomes very difficult, not least if you do it for two terms, as Neil Kinnock did. He was leader of the Labour Party for nine years. So by 1992, people were tired of him, just berating his party, doing this, doing that. I mean, he was a much more substantial reformer of his party, say, than David Cameron was of the Conservatives. But he was doing it for nine years. And I think, in retrospect, he was doomed to lose. 
because he was never going to win the first time round in 87, and by 92 he'd been doing it for too long. So even though there were many moments when he dared to think and the media assumed he was going to win, including, by the way, during the 92 election, um, and something awful happened to him. The, the, the BBC had an election guru, you might remember him, called Vincent Hanna, Irish guy, he used to do all the by-elections, a cheeky sort of chap who was a very good friend of Kinnock's. And the BBC did their exit poll in 1992 and got it wrong, badly wrong. And they predicted a hung parliament. Uh, now, those in the know know the exit poll by about 7 o'clock in the evening. They are all sworn to secrecy. Vincent Hanna was not one to stick to swearings of secrecy. And he phoned Kinnock up and said, Neil, you'll be Prime Minister by Monday. It's going to be a hung parliament. Uh, you'll do a deal with the Lib Dems, you're Prime Minister. Got it completely wrong. That was the one major one. Um, and the Tories for the fourth time in 92. And Ed Miliband, you could see he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. Um, he sort of, half of him wanted to break with new Labour. He felt guilt about his brother, who didn't think there should be a break with new Labour. He was terrified of Ed Balls, who he felt obliged at the end to make Shadow Chancellor. And as a public figure, he had been, like his brother, actually, more at ease behind the scenes. They were special advisors. They were intellectuals, very interested in ideas, um, but were unsure, both of them, actually, uh, as to what their public figures should be. And they lost. And Jeremy Corbyn, in a way, is the most extraordinary story of all the... By the way, they're not tragic, the stories in the book. They are because some of these people achieved a great deal, uh, in some cases, arguably, more than some prime ministers. I mean, look at Liz Truss. I mean, you know, Dennis Healy could claim to have done a lot more. So could Hesseltine. Um, Liz Truss, do you remember her? She was prime minister for four weeks last, last year, in case you forgot. Um, yeah, Jeremy Corbyn, it was extraordinary, because of all these people, most of the people in this book, you know, even Rab Butler, who we be I begin the book with, who was in his own way rather modest, but dripped with ambition to be prime minister and dared to think three times that he would be, never got there. Um, all the others, oh God, you know, Portillo, Sleepless Nights, Hesseltine from three months old, wanting to be prime minister. And so their failure to get it did torment them. Jeremy Corbyn had never wanted to be Labour leader, had never wanted uh, to be on the front bench. Uh, he had been an MP since 1983, the year Blair and Brown got into the House of Commons. Blair and Brown were in the shadow cabinets. They then became, of course, Prime Minister and Chancellor all the time, uh, Jeremy Corbyn on the back benches, uh, mainly voting against the government of the day, the Labour government of the day. And then, of course, famously stood. And I did for Radio 4 a series about Corbyn's first year, and John McDonnell told me that when Corbyn agreed to be the left's candidate in that election, uh, McDonnell said to him, look, it's going to be quite embarrassing. We're going to be like two characters. I'll go with you all around the country, and we'll be like those two characters in the last of the summer wine. We'll go and speak. There'll be about four people. You can go home, do your allotment, and then it will be over. But at least we've put the case. And as some of you will know, um, they went to the first rally in Camden Town, and it was like a rock concert. 
They had, there was an over, it was Kinnock in Darlington, overspill. Um, and then it happened wherever he went and halfway through, Corbyn realised he was going to win. And not just win, but win by a landslide. And he had never, ever thought of anything close to that. And I say in the book, you know, whatever you think about him, whatever you think of his views, in terms of the challenge, it was like someone playing tennis in a park um, and then being told, oh, you're, you know, uh, there's a bit of a gap at Wimbledon. Do you mind going to the centre court? <laughs> and having said, so he'd never been on the front bench at the dispatch box. And there he was doing Prime Minister's questions as leader of the opposition. And what is interesting about his experience was uh, he almost got there in 2017, that election that Theresa May called, oh, she lost her majority, uh, was astonishing and merits still to this very day further investigation as to what really happened in that election. But then 2017 to 2019 is a lesson on how not to become prime minister. And of course, he was slaughtered in December 2019. So Starmer now faces an epic challenge that most of his predecessors failed to meet, even though there were times, like now with him, that there was an assumption they were going to win. So there we go. There are a few examples of why. This is, it's more of a kind of detective story than this. Why the prime ministers we never had never got there. There are many other things we could explore, but let's do that now in our conversation together. Thank you very much. So there we are. We then had a kind of wider discussion, um, and uh, which was very interesting, as they always are, the discussion bit of these book festival talks. Um, but I couldn't work out a way, as I say, of recording that. Um, and yeah, new book coming out in September. Uh, so I'll be on a never-ending tour of the festivals again for that one. But I'll tell you more about that on another time. I do think uh, the more I reflect on the prime ministers we never had, uh, what light it casts on the assumptions we all hold, really, about who will succeed, why they will succeed, the feverish insecurity in number 10 at virtually all times about threats from possible successors. Um, it's part of the heady brew of Westminster British politics. And yet, apart from, as I said in the talk, this last mad period, prime ministers are quite hard to dislodge. Um, anyway, there are other themes in the book which um, I didn't explore uh, in that talk but are in the book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, and I'll tell you about the new book another time. Uh, so there we are. Yeah, that's it. We've got a great interview coming up at the end of the week. Um, so do tune in for that as we delve deep. And let's all get together again uh, next week to explore. There will be, of course, the return of the regular question time. Keep the questions coming. SteveRick14 at iCloud.com or make your points as the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative delves deep to make sense of it all. If you are away over half term, enjoy it. Uh, it's going to be intense politics uh, when you get back. Um, if you're working, 
well, just, you know, take a break in the evening or whatever. Uh, and see you all again very soon. Take care. Bye.